Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. All right, all right. So are you feeling verified today, John? Because I am feeling verified. Uh, I, I have I have been verified not only by the Special Inves- Investigative Podcasters Association, but also <laughs> by the continuing psychic damage that Elon Musk is doing to all of our collective consciousness on Twitter. Yeah, I, I, I choose to remain verified by a, a demoniacal reflection of myself that listens to too much jazz music. <laughs> uh, I, okay, okay, I okay, a, so... I have, a, I have a question. I have a question. Yes, um, yes. Do you, ever, do you ever get a feeling of deja vu? Oh, oh lord. Do I ever get the sensation of deja vu should we let our listeners in on a little we'll say hv lodge magic that has happened in relation to the episode we are currently recording yes yes please do so so for all you listeners out there we're doing our twin peaks retrospective uh we managed to record the first five episodes of the retrospective uh and then i'm uploading them i'm releasing them things are going well and then rest in pain just isn't there 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 are there are no notes in our shared do- note document for rest and pain. I have no files on my computer for rest and pain, no graphics for rest and pain, no scheduled episode uploads for rest and pain. The episode simply does not exist in any material or traceable way. However, John, will you let will you let our audience know the mystery of rest and pain? The mystery is that we remember doing this. We've vividly. We've been here before. Both both of us. Both of us remember talking about this episode before. We we're trapped in a kind of recursive loop. This is the most Twin Peaks Twin Peaks podcast episode that I think we could possibly do. I I legitimately don't know what's going on. Which, sure, that's true a lot of the time on this show. That's kind of a given around here. But, like, I there, there are aspects of this conversation that I just, like, we've, we've had this. We've been here. We have talked about rest and pain. And, but it just, the episode, I am baffled by this. And, and for a show which is so much about the kind of complete unknowability of, of, exi- mm-hmm. of existence, the complete struggle to impose some sort of kind of narrative coherence on ourselves, on our community relationships. It is so fitting. Like, what what are we? What are we to listeners? We're these disembodied voices. We are these digital ghosts that are temporally and geographically dislo- mm-hmm. dislocated from one another and from our listenership, right? I don't know where you are. I don't know what time it is when you're listening to this. Maybe you're re-listening to this because you thought the opening bit was funny. Like, I, I, <laughs> I feel like we're tra- we are trapped in the podcaster's red room, right? This is like we can't get out. <laughs> and and so much about so much of Twin Peaks is kind of reduced into this conversation of doppelgangers, right? Who's the real one? Who's the good one? Which one is true? And which one belongs to this? 
a, you know, otherworldly dream dimension. But it, it becomes much more complex when you realize that you are one of those doppelgangers. And that at some point we may have recorded this episode. Yeah. And, and entirely blanked it. And and somehow managed to delete the document. Yeah, what's what's worse? The idea that you might have a doppelganger or realizing that you are the copy. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, oh yes. Oh yes, yes. This is such an interesting space to be in. And then realizing that I, I think even even beyond that, there's there's a conversation to be had about like what happens when the self collides with its doppelganger? You know, like what happens when we contact the other that is the self and re-record a podcast episode that may or may not have ever been recorded in the first place? Welcome then to <laughs> to the continuing adventures of us as we wander through the metaphysics of Twin Peaks, as we find ourselves trapped within a technological meta-narrative where the distinctions between waking and dreaming, between Twin Peaks and the podcast about Twin Peaks become increasingly blurred. So I'm just, I'm, I gotta be really honest. I'm so happy that we're only at episode four slash episode three, Rest in Pain, and you and I are already subsumed <laughs> in, into this world of owls that aren't what they seem. Uh, this this black lodge mystery. You know, I where we're simul. I I, re oh, I, on, I really like it here. I'm thinking about you know maybe when this case is over, I'll you know buy a little house. I mean, I well, I just got to say, rent in the black lodge is just comically cheap. <laughs> comically cheap. Yeah, everyone and everyone here is honestly indistinguishable from all of the people I regularly know and talk with. Like, like if if I saw you or Labor Kyle or Kay and Skittles just walk through the through the through the red room, I would be like, "Good morning. Would you like some coffee?" It would not. It would not be a break from the norm here. Well, um, should we do this? Should we do this again? We're either, we're either about to do this again, or for the first time, or maybe, which I think is a darker potential, you and I are living in a Groundhog's Day loop where we increasingly have this, this hypnagogic deja vu for an episode we eternally record. Let us, let us as Sisyphus, hit the record button. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna... <laughs> Uh, log oh, on to my dear. podcasting oh, equipment and dear. take a big sip of coffee. Hello? Time order is arbitrary. Hello? H hello, the liquor guy. I am, I am sending my psychic emanations through the void. Can you hear me? He's gone back to the tomb, to his heathen gods. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I believe I believe I'm trapped in the formalism zone of this episode, and I can't get out. <laughs> Listeners, we just we just attempted to enter the formalism zone, and we're forced apart by demoniac but demoniacal technological machinations. But you know what? We're podcasters. God damn it! We're we are the detectives of this audio realm, and we will not be stopped by some mere cosmic chicanery. Look, if we actually manage to record and release an episode on an episode on Cursed, an episode which I think very nearly broke both of us, 
we can deal with this. That's true. That's true. If we if we were able to to take cursed into our hands and mold it into some kind of stone of power, we we can we can handle you. Episode three slash four of Twin Peaks. Rest in pain. <laughs> okay. Okay. So before before we're sucked back into the void, what do you feel? What do you think? What do you know of the sonic landscape of Twin Peaks? I I know we've talked about this, but can we just isn't have we? <laughs> isn't 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 the theme music just unbelievably good? God, this like it's this beautiful noirish sort of romance. It has a kind of romance to it. Actually, quite a lot of the music does. Um, which yeah, really- so I've been listening. Oh, go on, go which on, go I really on. love, and I love, I love the kind of like jazz influence on a lot of the music as well. Yes, yes, I I love the music here. I've been listening a lot to a lot of um, Mount Fog lately, a folktronica artist, and it's 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 got me thinking about like the soundtrack of Twin Peaks and kind of like this audio landscape and how it's by its own nature very hauntological right and and elizabeth van elfren has an amazing book on the gothic and music and the uncanny and and a lot of what that book works through is that music is inherently haunting right there's something ephemeral about it right it's it's in the air it's gone it only exists in memory and contact with the body and i think that overlays so well onto kind of the themes and motifs of twin peaks rest in pain Was it created, and time itself, in some gigantic explosion at some definite point of the past? John, are you there? Oh, my word. Oh, Oh, what is... (laughs) What is going on? What is is this? I will not. I will not be defeated like this. I will not be defeated by a mere... uh, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't even know. But we're not. We're not going out like this. <laughs> yeah, sound is this kind of like constantly written and rewritten text. Like, how could it be anything other than haunted? Oh, absolutely. And there's something participatory about music too. It's a very easy genre to create. Not to discredit what musicians do. But anybody, anybody can just bang out a song, tap a beat, you know, start humming. It's, it's, it's not as technologically mediated as other forms of art that require a lot of physical material to begin to craft. I mean, yeah, it, quite arguably, uh, it is um, one of, if not the oldest art form, right? It's Oh, absolutely. In some ways, it's kind of integral to human subjectivity in the first place. Oh, I, I completely agree. Like, if we want to talk about humans as a pattern-seeking creature, you know, like these these ur rhythms that carry through the air, these vibrations that are felt through the body, like, it's only natural that we would want to play with those series of repetitions. And it's striking that the big influence on the music is is jazz-related, right? Jazz, this mo- the most kind of syncretic uh, of, mm-hmm. of American musical forms, right? Everything, everything gets pulled into jazz, right, in the in the beginning of the in the early 1900s right when it first develops as a form goes through different schools you know uh and is informed by genuinely kind of global uh tastes and trends in music as well right uh so much of it comes through uh 
European it is a response to European classical music lots of it comes through uh the polyrhythms of West African music like it's this it's this place in which everything sonically collides into something jazz is the is the sound of dialectical possibility fight me Adorno oh yeah <laughs> I, 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 I was gonna say like in one hand uh, uh jazz has been many forms of jazz i should say have been entirely recuperated into capitalism to the point where like trite banal suffering that is elevator music is literally just jazz but also jazz is the site of acidic potential and therefore adorno adorno's soul is now with us exactly exactly um adorno would have loved twin peaks uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> no adorno didn't love anything he wouldn't have loved twin peaks uh i don't know don't know about that one <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, do you know how much I would pay for Adorno to talk about the new Star Wars? Oh, that would have been great. Uh, yeah, I mean, he suffered a lot in his life anyway. I don't think we need to inflict that on him as well. <laughs> you, mean, you mean we don't need him to watch the Stalinist Star Wars show? Uh, I don't, don't, don't think so, no. <laughs> I don't, I don't. Okay, well this isn't, this isn't St- Stalinist, Stalinist Star Wars podcast. We are, we are something different. Well, I, actually, you know what this this whole this whole <laughs> this whole episode has a kind of dr- dr- dream logic to it. So you know what I'm we're we're free associating, right? We're we're this is this is podcasting as jazz. It's about the things we're not saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Uh, <laughs> if and if you would like to if you would like to support this avant garde experimentation in the podcasting form. <laughs> then please do check out patreon.com slash horror vanguard where you get early access to every single episode that we release a bonus episode every single month exclusive content that doesn't go anywhere else and access to the hv discord where you get to suggest things that you would like me and ash to cover uh chip in a few bucks a month help us keep making the show speaking of which let's get back to that That was actually one of our better Patreon plugs. Thank you for that one. It's only taken nearly four years. (laughs) I I will say, though, as academics, we are probably in like the upper 10% of academics who are good at asking people to pay us for things. So so take that where you will. Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about uh, graphology. Ooh, go on. So right at the right at the beginning of uh this episode, Cooper goes downstairs and runs into Audrey. Um uh, who by the way, we should have talked about this. The two of them have insane chemistry. <laughs> like yes. It's like yep. it's, it's so good. Um and Cooper asks Audrey about the note uh by by getting her to write her name out. And then says, by j- judging by the slant of of the R that she's written, uh, it indicates a romantic nature. And I think there's something super interesting about beginning with grapho- graphology, because in a way, Twin Peaks could be considered an exercise in experimental language, right? So it has its own visual language that it's constructing on the kind of metaformal level 
but the internal language of it is this simultaneous track between Cooper's like free associative psychoanalytic dream logic of investigation and the rational ling linguistic structures of the law. And I think it's super interesting that Cooper already knows something about Audrey, but it's revealed through writing, through uh, through script, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, there's some super complex things happening on the level of language in this scene, especially as it precedes Cooper explaining his dream. Um, writing reveals character, right? How do you know? How do you know who somebody is? You don't pay attention to what they do; you pay attention to what they say. Right, that's how you. That's how you gain access. You become a kind of like cognitive graphologist, right? You, mm -hmm. you unspool consciousness through language, which is an incredibly kind of interesting way of getting beyond, like the deductive process of action. Right, what we're interested in is the psychic landscape, and you only get that mediation through the linguistic sign. Ooh, I love that. That is a wonderful take. I love I love the balance too between these kind of a a mundane tool of detection and the Tibetan mysticism that Cooper was wielding in a previous episode. I I love the kind of balance that's struck there, right? Like his kind of like this again, this goes back to your comments on jazz. You know, like like this this is an acidic, freely connected you know, series of hermeneutics that Cooper is just wielding to move himself closer and closer to an inevitable conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like the connection here is to dreaming, right? How does Cooper describe the dream? Uh, he describes it as a code, right? You become a graph you become a a graphologist, right? This is like my my weird out of pocket theory is that. Uh, for Twin Peaks, actually, for so much of Lynch's work, hermeneutics is the ultimate aim, right? What is, what is, mm -hmm. what is the, what, you know, it isn't, life is about the kind of, it's made through its interpretation and its exegesis. Yes. Uh, so, like, dreams are not anything other than these things. I think code is quite a kind of cold way of putting it, but dreams are symbolic invitations into the into the act of interpretation itself and interpretation is not quite the same thing as detection right so that's why there's this conflict or this tension between uh the sheriff and cooper oh oh completely right and like so much of twin peaks is dedicated to solving not just the murder of laura palmer but what happened to laura palmer and that is a much more complicated question that we, we've talked about in previous episodes. But it's I think it's worth flagging up in the context of rest and pain that a lot of that is, it's not about like this trite piecing together of facts and figuring out who was where and who had a good alibi. But it's about kind of just shattering and reforging like ontologies, right? It's about discovering new ways of knowing so that you can be revealed the information that was just kind of sitting there to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's like, this is why I love Invitation to Love, which keeps popping up. <laughs> I I love Invitation to Love so much. I, I love that people have kind of worked out what the plot is <laughs> yes. from the little snippets that you get shown. Uh, because it's like, again, it, it, if 
if existence, if subjectivity is an act of hermeneutics, all all of existence is meaningful in some way, even if that meaning mm-hmm. is still to be disclosed, right? Yeah. By the examination of how somebody writes their name, you can like unlock the deepest aspects of their character, of, of who they are as a person. Um which honestly I find I find kind of beautiful. And I think that that's key here because like a lot of like a lot of graphology and a lot of handwriting analysis it's like a lot of ways of knowing is kind of bound into systems of ideology. And I think one of the things that makes Cooper so interesting as a character is he he he's got some outspoken ideological commitments, right? You know, like like his comments about Tibet and things like that. Like Cooper, he's not he's not a a, a kind of like wishy washy character, right? He he's grounded in who he is. But I think first and foremost, he's he's open to potential and open to mystery. You know, he he's he's willing to be guided by things that other people will would not listen to. And I think that when when he's using graphology to to analyze Audrey, it doesn't fall back and get like subsumed into I guess like these ideological frameworks that an FBI detective might be beholden to. Yeah, because like what what's the point of interpretation? The inter- point of interpretation is not to prove anything, but is to allow someone to know themselves. Yes. Right. You know, he says you know you should be careful. You have a very you have a very romantic nature, you know, a heart that yearns. She doesn't say that he's. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say that he's wrong, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. And and I, I love I love Cooper's kind of like meta awareness of this too, right? Like he's, you know, we get we get that scene where they're where they're questioning people, and he's like, "I'm going to leave the room because I'm a strong sender," you know. Like I I really really like his kind of. I don't know the way he the way he plays with kind of like the language of spiritualism as a character is just like or this kind of like neo spiritualism. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy. I mean, Lynch has made his interest in like transcendental meditation super clear for a very long time. Oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I don't necessarily think that's the only way of reading it. I I really do think that like understanding existence as an act of hermeneutics takes you into some super interesting places. Speaking of going into some super interesting places, would you like to talk about uh, the Briggs family? We should. We should. The poor, poor Bobby Briggs. And and also poor Major Garland. What is this? This this family has the most going on. Oh, yes. Oh, where, where, where do we even stop? Well, I think this is so this is the episode where we first see the, the kind of conflict of character that is Bobby Briggs, uh, Laura, Laura Palmer's ex-lover uh and and kind of the wayward bad boy of the twin peaks universe and major briggs uh simultaneously the paragon of like the respectable american man and this kind of like american masculinized virtue but also a guy who is involved in a secret government project that sends deep space ufo signals into the forest outside of you know like like somewhere in the pacific northwest and also communicates with owls, but they're not owls. And I, they're Major Briggs. Ma- Ma- Major Briggs, how did you escape the X-Files? That's my question for you. Yeah, I think it's interesting simply because, like, he's the exemplar of everything Bobby talks about in it, like, the, the speech at the funeral, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this idea that appearance 
and even like fid- outward fidelity to institutions, to the ideological investments that those institutions underpin, uh, it always conceals this kind of like churning, surreal psychodrama that has to be has to be kind of disciplined out it's like it's like psychic fucodianism right (laughs) (laughs) the it's not about not it's not even about like an internalized panopticon it's about an internalized kind of system of biopolitical generation where all of Mm -hmm. that stuff that happens out in the woods has to be sublimated it has to be repressed literally repressed uh in order to maintain the facade of like the military and the army and its fidelity to yes. the state. It's it, it's it's about it's it, there's this like kind of anhedonia to Major Briggs too. He's a very like when when he talks he's a very passionate man. You know like I I, I often when I consider him I consider him with the log lady's introduction with every episode. They, they they both have these kind of like prosaic musings about the nature of existence that that both frame and emerge from the text. And I think that for for Briggs, you're absolutely correct. Like that internalization that's happening, that kind of swallowing that's going on, needs to kind of delibidinize the world. And I think what makes Bobby really interesting for me is that it's tempting to read Bobby as as kind of like a corrective force to that. If Briggs if Briggs needs to become anhedonic in order to swallow the world in, in, into this like way of seeing it. Then, then Bobby is is kind of like he's he's the white hole to Major Briggs's black hole. Yeah, he's, he's the rupture. Like he's the he's the James Dean, right? That's 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 you know the the the, the bad boy with the leather jacket and bike, right? Like I think he's yes. like his his speech at the funeral is great, right? But it it oh I agree shows yeah. that he's only partly articulated the problem where he says uh everyone knew she was in trouble we didn't do anything all you good people you want to know who killed laura you did we all did pretty words aren't gonna bring her back so save your prayers she would have laughed at them anyway which is great so good it was so good so good, so good. I, I do i do think i do think we can we can make the reading of bobby briggs a little bit more complex too and that's through at least for me this realization that like Bobby Briggs isn't a corrective, right? He's not really a disjarring of the kind of systems that Major Briggs represents. He's he's like an inscription of them, right? He's he's the counterbalance, right? He's the wayward kid, but he's wayward in all the ways that you're kind of like James Dean teenager is supposed to be wayward. You know, like, you know, he's he's dealing drugs and he's getting into fights and he's he's skipping school. He's like your classic 1950s American bad boy. But like the grand arc of the classic 1950s American bad boy is to ultimately become your father. Right? Like like you yeah, it's not isn't, the actual isn't, escape. Isn't that the source of his angst, right? That's completely the source of his angst, right? The the yes. unshakable mm-hmm. awareness that no matter how much you you kick against it, that's who you'll turn turn into. Bobby and his father don't get on because Bobby thinks that he's looking into the future and he's correct. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's a, like for me, there's a lot of tragedy in Bobby's character, and one of them is that I, th- I think Bobby can't recognize that his kind of omnidirectional chaos is in and of itself a direction, is 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 a choice, is a path that he's walking down. It's just a path that he's abnegated the control over. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exemplary, right, of the countercultural rebellion of the late fifties and six, yes, late fifties and sixties, yep. right. 
who did these people all grow up to be, <laughs> right? Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah, all of the hippies, all of the first wave of punk rockers, all of the greasers, they all became the generation that brought about climate collapse. You know, like, n none of them became what they wanted to be. Which... Which, uh, dear listeners, let that let that Grim Reaper's bell toll deep within your heart, as we must avoid said fate. What else? What else do you want to bring up from this episode? Oh my God! Let's let's talk. Let's talk about not friend of the podcast. The first time we've had a not friend in a while. Uh, Albert. Ah uh, yes, the wonderfully kind of like. There's this weird sort of. Um, external law enforcement seems to be this kind of like strange chaos that gets introduced into this town. Yes. And this immediately got me thinking of Carol Clover's men, women and chainsaws, like about 90% of the things on this earth do. Um, and there's this, there's a line in Carol Clover's men, women and chainsaws that has always stuck with me. And it's when she's talking about, I spit on your grave and she's talking about, I spit on your grave, both as this kind of revenge of a gendered underclass uh, cis women against a gendered overclass cis men, but also as a revenge of a kind of economic overclass, the urban over an economic underclass, the rural, right? So it's it's not quite a cut as cut and dry of a text as it would seem. And we have that here with Albert, especially. Albert is the revenge of of the proper urbanized core of like respectable capitalism coming out to discipline the outskirts. Well, I think that that moment is super interesting, right? Um, it's like Cooper takes Harry's side. Yep. Like he chooses, right? He picks, like, uh, like there's a there's a, suddenly you have this kind of tension, right? But in Cooper's character, where there is now a kind of choice that's being made between the FBI and Twi like that, the antagonism that's always there in the relationship between ordinary people and law enforcement agencies that over police them. You start to kind of see it a little bit, right? He's talking about like, he, he picks his side. He's, he's starting to choose the, the community that he's come to rather than simply continuing to be this outsider. Who's there to quote unquote, solve something. And I think this this speaks to a lot of what Cooper's character is, especially by the time a hundred years from now, when we have escaped this kind of Groundhog's Day Black Lodge loop that we're trapped in, and we can finally be free to discuss Twin Peaks: The Return. You know, like one of the most interesting things about Cooper's character is that increasingly through his presence in the show, his identity as a quote unquote detective melts off of him, and he becomes a member of Twin Peaks. He becomes. One with those Douglas furs. Well, I think this brings up the Backwoods Boys, right? Uh, the Bookhouse Boys. The oh. Bookhouse Boys, rather. <laughs> the, the Backwoods, that's their lodge equivalent. Uh, the Backhouse. It's the Backhouse? Right. Uh, the Bookhouse Boys. Um, and there's this. There's that great line uh, Harry says in the diner. Um, Twin Peaks is different. A long way from the world. You've noticed that. That's exactly the way we like it. But there's a back end to that. That's kind of different too. Maybe that's the price we pay for all the good things. There's a sort of evil out there. Something very, very strange in those old woods. Call it what you want. A darkness. A presence. It takes many forms. But it's been out there for as long as anyone can remember. And we've always been here to fight it. Men before us. Men before them. 
more after we're gone. Ooh, this 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 get okay. So what do you what do you make of the Bookhouse Boys? Because this gets so interesting. Well, there's a there's a there's an interesting um, there's a, there's I think it's very interesting what you said this about this idea of the identity of the detective kind of starting to fall away from someone. And instead of the de- the detective, right? If you really try and understand existence, do you get drawn into not a legal problem or a hermeneutic problem? Maybe you get drawn into an ontological problem, right? What is there out in the woods? Yes, yes. And I, I do I do like the idea of. So I think a, a lot of, and I think this isn't this is an artifact of our, our pop culture informed ways of communicating. But we often have an antagonistic approach to generational ways of knowing. We, we talk about boomers as being the, these kind of damned, withered souls that, that threw off the reins of power and cursed us all to a November that's 70 degrees in the Midwest. But, you know, like, there are also a lot of boomers who are committed to left politics and have, have made achievements and strides that, that we can aspire to and we can learn from. And also we can learn from those failures and shortcomings. And I think the Bookhouse Boys, like this kind of acknowledgement that like to achieve anything meaningful and lasting and good in this world is necessarily an intergenerational project. It's it's kind of it's it's powerful in a disturbing way, because if you're going to fight something that's like abhuman that lives kind of outside and beyond us, you need to generate something that is equally abhuman. Right. You need to bind yourself over time and through death. Oh, what a great line. What a great line. Boom, 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 boom. Any, All right. That's why that's why they call me podcaster. Any any <laughs> any final thoughts? Um, I would just I just quick shout out to my log lady. Quick quick shout out to the best character in the show. Um I did a quick shout out to the log lady. Like and subscribe, hit some likes in the chat for the log lady, everybody. Uh that's me, me with a pair of Oakley sunglasses and a backwards hat. That's my log I, my uh Black Lodge version coming through. I mean, I, I, I've always from the beginning of doing this, I've always thought of you as the log lady of Horror Vanguard. Oh, you know, honestly that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but what it, so the log lady's introduction for this one, she's talking about sadness right like like what like and i think she got this wonderful line that says what is this thing called a tear and like that that really like this whole episode is and this is exactly what you were talking about when you were talking about graphology but it's about analyzing you know like symbols and symbologies as ways of knowing as ways of understanding and their own ontologies and i think we you know like albert is in town because he's doing the autopsy on laura palmer's body you know, he's there from the FBI. He's the big gun with all the know-how and all the equipment. And he's refusing to let the townspeople bury her body. He needs to study it more to, to get more clues drawn out of it. And this raises a question of who is Laura Palmer's body for? But I think the log lady gives us a clue here, right? What is this thing called a tear? Laura's body, when it's originally found, looks like a gigantic tear. Yeah. It's this crystalline frozen thing washed up on the, on the shore from this lake. And, and it's washed not up onto the shore of Twin Peaks, but onto the shore of the self, onto us, right? We're living in a world where you can buy a wrapped in plastic Laura Palmer Funko Pop. And there are people who wear that as a costume for Halloween, too. Like, this, this is something, this is a symbol that, like, what is the meaning of this tear? This thing that has kind of, like, fractured and moved away from its original core. And I think this is, this is, um, it's a beautiful way of putting something which I think is a real clear theme, which is 
the way uh, Laura's body in particular is turned into the public commodity, right? Which is directly tied into what I think is a very strong feminist theme in so much of, Twi- yes. in so much of Twin Peaks, which is about uh, the ways in which women's bodies are uh, both sought to be controlled, fetishized, commodified, whereas at the same time, women's consciousness is this thing which always eludes and goes beyond the kind of like slavering grasp of patriarchal power. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I really cannot wait until we can start talking about David Duchovny's character because we are going to yes. be head over high heels talking about some fantastic gender discourse later on. Absolutely. Well, let us let us conclude there for the first, second, or maybe another time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the, it's, it's been great to finally record this episode and to hopefully have physical proof that we have done so. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining our continued journey through the Twin Peaks retrospective. We'll be back next time with the next episode, or maybe this episode again, because something that you should grapple with is that it could be you trapped in the time loop of the Lodge. We could be merely an adornment on your repeating cycle of reality. Good night, good morning, and goodbye. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.